Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. Jason McMaster, singer of Dangerous Toys and Dirty Looks, is my guest today. Uh, he's also the singer for Watchtower, Broken Teeth, Howling Sycamore, Igniter, some tribute bands. Uh, he's released 21 total full-length records since 1985. I know him mostly as a singer of Dangerous Toys. That's really my jam. Um, and this is another one of those 80s bands that I discovered later on a compilation record. Uh, then we went back and uh, found their whole catalog, and I really enjoyed the music they made. Uh, Dangerous Toys was pretty big back in the day. They had a gold record. They had like five videos played on MTV. They toured with Alice Cooper, Judas Priest, Motorhead, The Cult. Um, and I think things continued for, the, for, for him and some of his bands. Uh, the guys from that metal show, which is one of my favorite shows, they're fans of his band uh, Broken Teeth. And we talk about that and um, th that story and a lot of other stories. And there's a few surprises along the way in this interview. Because as you know, I do a lot of research, but there was a lot of stuff I didn't know about. And this is a little bit of a longer episode for me, um, but that's just because Jason's accomplished so much and he's had such a long career and I had a lot of questions and I actually didn't even get to all my questions. So I'll have to have him on again, um, but hopefully this interview should hold fans over for a while. So here you go, Jason McMaster. I think I've, uh, I think I've learned a lot about you and all the uh, bands that you've been in. You've got 21 full-length records since 1985, is that correct? Uh, that sounds right. Okay. <laughs> it sound, sounds crazy, but it sounds right. All right. Well, welcome to my show. Um, so, yeah, well, you start at the uh, beginning. Um, so your background, you're a big fan of Kiss, Elton John, Aerosmith, ACDC, Deep Pearl, all these 70s bands. Um, what was that like uh, back in that time, you were a kid? Were your parents into that kind of music, too? Or they, at least they let you listen to it, right? They approved of it? Well, whether they approved or not, I don't think that, I they just think that they, I was lucky enough that they were liberal enough to just, oh, it's, I guess it's just music. I guess it's okay. At least it's going to keep him in his bedroom and out of trouble with it. You know, I also <laughs> had three brothers. So, you know, the bad influences of my older brothers and my, and my one younger brother, uh, honestly, it's their record collections and my neighborhood friends. Uh, their older brother's record collections as well that sort of influenced okay. me. Uh, yeah. The babysitter across the street in, uh, turned me on to Elton John, and it was all over from there. I guess Elton was my first real, like, rocker to kind of, I mean, I was probably in third grade or something. Wow. You know, fourth grade, third third grade. And I think that it was maybe a summer after that that my friends in the neighborhood, their older brothers had Kiss Alive. And that was like 75, 76. So I was 10. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, and so that's, and then I got into Kiss and it was all, it was all over after sure. It was all over after that. But, right. Your first but by then I already had yeah. a bunch of, bunch of Queen records. Queen and Elton John were probably the first ones before Kiss. Okay. And your but your first concert was actually Rush and UFO. Is that right? At like age twelve or thirteen. That is correct. Yeah, and then you got seventy seven. Yeah, and then you got your first bass guitar around that uh, time. You probably because of Gene Simmons and Kiss. And you it's, you said you couldn't even tune it. You didn't have an amp, but so eventually you just figured it out and you kind of copied the bass lines of your favorite records. You self taught yourself, right? So was that kind of just trial and error then mostly, or did somebody show you some licks or? No, it was really, it really was exactly how you just said it. It was, uh, 
it was put the needle in the groove and, you know, here goes nothing. Um, wow. you know, trying to, trying to listen for, you know, what be the lowest note, uh, you know, in the song, whether it be the opening or the, you know, the bridge or the chorus or whatever, and know, just learn, just learn by tone that, you know, that fat string close to you on the top is the lowest note. And, you know, I might've grabbed the tuning peg and, you know, dropped it, dropped, you know, moved it around up or down to, to make it match whether, cause if they were playing, anything higher than that low E, I would just tune the bass to it. I was like, Oh no, I'm going to break the string. I'll go back down somewhere and try the next string. And it was, it really was sort of literal self teaching of how the bass worked. Um, but my teachers were, uh, my records. That's very cool. Yeah. It must've been harder too, because now you got equalizers and there's, I, you know, my friends that, that play along with records and, and they do all sorts of crazy stuff and turn off the guitars and play them their own guitars. But back then, I mean, with records, you couldn't change the equalizers, right? I mean, it was a lot harder. Well, there was, yeah, there was, there was no EQ on a Mickey Mouse turntable, you know, <laughs> if you were just yeah. a little kid, if you were 10, 10 years old and 12 years old trying to play along with something, your stereo was pretty pretty janky you know and uh especially in the 70s and i mean they had they had high they had you know hi-fi but you know when you're when you're that age you don't have hi-fi you got mickey mouse turntable you know so i'm i'm listening to these incredible uh groundbreaking rock bands that would become institutions you know, only they've after, only after they've been together three three to five years with only a few records out, and they're they're you know it's it's completely mind blowing that because I thought that you know surely this is magic. Mm-hmm. I mean, how are they doing this? It's just human beings, and they're they might be they look they look like they're wearing their mother's clothes, and they're <laughs> but they're playing these 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 instruments, and they're making these sounds, and they're talking about these wild. Uh, you know, the, the lyrics, I didn't know what they meant. It didn't matter to me what they meant. It was, it was the sound. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I let it guide me and, and my, you know, my family and, and my friends and, you know, I mean, I had, I had some, I had some, uh, you know, my parents had friends and they had kids. Of course, we used to play together and hang out and I brought some kiss records over to their house one time and, I don't know how I got it, got them into the house because by the time I got them into my buddy's, you know, my, my nine and 10 year old buddy's bedroom to try to listen to him, he's backing away from me. Like I was holding the devils in my hand, you know, yeah, and that's I'm like, I... I'm like, dude, I got these, <laughs> I got these kiss records, man. They're awesome. And he's like, Oh no, my parents don't let us listen to that shit. Yeah. Well, that was so back was before kind of, they, they had those stickers, right? Like, cause when I was grew up in the eighties and nineties, they had all those parent parental advisory. My parents wouldn't let me listen to any of that stuff. So you'd have to like put it on a blank tape and then write down Rod Stewart or something. And then, then it was okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, but you know, the, um, the, the, the crazy thing was, is, uh, Chuck, I didn't know what, they, they were talking about what do you mean your parents <laughs> right. won't let you listen to this it's just rock and roll music yeah you weren't reading the lyrics probably it was more just into the sound of it that it sounded cool right 
Well, it, back then the lyrics didn't really come with the record, you know, and and it wasn't it wasn't about the lyrics. Once again, it wasn't about the lyrics, even though they could have been, you know, and they weren't cursing up a storm. It wasn't no. like you know, it wasn't like rap music in the eighties where it was, you know bitches and hoes and cash and drugs and <laughs> right. you know it wasn't about it sure it was sex drugs and rock and roll but it wasn't uh you know if they were talking about it it was cleverly done yeah. and innuendos and, and it was yeah and that's and that's what i loved about acdc and aerosmith and nazareth and all you know it was really cool oh definitely they, they were they were talking about all of these things i was too young to know about um, but it just sounded cool because I sure I'd heard some of the words they're using, but I didn't know what the phrases, de, you know, defined. Right. So then you and ended up, so, yeah. sorry, go on. No, I, I was just saying, um, you know, it wasn't about, it wasn't about the lyrics. Right. It, it, it really was that I was, um, completely obsessed and possessed by, <laughs> Uh, you know, rock and roll music. Absolutely. And uh, and songs on the radio. And there was no FM radio back then. Um, it was just all AM radio. And it was, you know, Elton John. I mean, they played Alice Cooper. And back then, Alice Cooper was, I mean, was you know, edge, he was right? super, punk, super punk rock rebellious. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was, he was Ozzy before Ozzy. I mean, it took Ozzy to have a solo career before he was a Prince of Darkness or, or was some sort of like a household devil, you know, right. he's biting the heads off of bats and pigeons and all, you know, had getting that bad boy thing going on. And Alice Cooper was like, whatever, I've yeah. been doing that the whole time. <laughs> he's had the and, 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 and Alice Cooper was on the radio right next to Black Sabbath, but he was a little bit more rebellious by way of uh, his songs weren't about uh, the Vietnam War and stuff like Black Sabbath and the and the soldiers coming back addicted to opium and heroin and all that shit. And that's what Sabbath was kind of writing about uh, because they were children of the 60s. And, um, and then you had, uh, you know, Alice Cooper was more psychedelic and uh, was writing uh, more horror show themed kind of things in the early 70s. And on AM radio, you'd hear, you know, billion dollar babies and, and, and schools out and these crazy, you know, kids love that because, oh, school's out. Yeah, oh, yeah. school's out for summer. Yeah, I love it. You know, this is great. And parents and teachers are scratching their head going, wow, this is this music's going to start a riot. <laughs> so, you know, cutting edge is, is beyond. Yeah. He was yeah. beyond cutting edge. Absolutely. Yeah. So then around age 13, 14, I think you, you actually finally joined a band and then, um, this is an interesting story. You got kicked out of the band because you, you were with some older kids and you felt like maybe they thought you were cramping their style cause they joined to get girls, but you actually wanted to play music. So they kicked you out. Then you moved to, you ended up moving to Austin and joined a band called, fallen angel and uh, you guys did covers and originals and you started auditioning singers and that's when you realized you could actually sing better than the the singers auditioning so you and the drummer kind of uh chain uh took turns singing and that's how you learned to sing right 
You're just kind of, again, self-taught, yeah, we, right? You know, me, me and Mike, yeah, that's exactly right. Me and Mike Solis, uh, was the, who, who, who played drums in that band. Um, eventually both of us, um, that band was very short lived. Um, you know, maybe eight months, nine months. And we were in like 11th or 12th grade in high school. And, you know, we didn't know shit. And, you know, he, we, we had really terrible equipment and I don't think either of us had really tried our fair share of writing what would really have the guts to be a, a, a good song. You know, mm-hmm. I think just jamming together was, was enough for us. I mean, we were just kind of like happy to be playing our favorite cover songs and, and happy that there were guys that we thought were cool that, you know, wanted to jam with us. And that whole singer thing, um, you know, really uh, the idea spawned from just me and, and him being close and hanging out all the time and listening to cassettes in the boom box and just both of us singing top of our lungs while we're driving through the neighborhood, you know, That's awesome. and that boom box would be in the car <laughs> sitting, in, sitting, sitting bitch, you know, sitting, wow. laying down on its back between us. And just, you know, one of us would be, you know, putting in cassette tapes and one of us driving. And it was just really, it was probably a, a, a couple of summers that we did that uh, from the time fallen angel, was a thing it just playing backyard parties and whatever and and um and then you know uh one of our guitar players wanted to take a break and and i started headhunting looking for guitar players that would want to continue and just jam you know mm-hmm. no no pressure i mean we didn't we didn't think we were good i mean we were just trying to play rock and roll because mm-hmm. it was it felt like flying and it still feels like flying. And that's the main reason I play rock and roll, but, oh, that's very um, cool. yeah, the, the, I, I, uh, I was in a music store. I saw an ad and it said watchtower, you know, heavy metal band or whatever. Yeah. And back then the, you know, the term heavy metal in 1981, 82 is still fresh, you know, crazy train was a brand new song on the radio, you know? So, he, that puts it in a timeline for you. And right. um, there were a lot of... Uh, when, you, when you joined Watchtower, right? About 1982, you end up fronting correct. it. And that's the, the, you guys are yeah, considered cor- the correct. pioneers of progressive thrash metal. And actually, uh, Mike Portnoy, who's a famous drummer from Dream Theater and tons of other bands, he's a big fan of that band. Is that kind of music hard to play? Because when I listen to it, I go, oh my gosh, it's like all these time changes and just... I mean, it's all over the place. Like, is it hard to like either remember those songs or play those kinds of time changes? Like, do you guys ever get screwed up when you're playing live? Like, oh crap! Like, or you just practice, practice, practice. Well, when by the time that I had, you know, uh, met those guys and and roundabout way was originally looking for a guitar player, not trying to steal Watchtower's guitar player Billy White. Um, it was more like they had heard of me. And I'd never heard of them, and I didn't know. I was fairly new to town still. I considered myself new to Austin, and I didn't have a whole lot of friends. It was, I was changing quick. When you know, once I was in school for a year or so, and you know, that's how I met Mike Solis. But but uh, to finish it out, yeah, it was. 
once I realized that these guys were amazing musicians and they were, you know, 16 years old was kind of mind blowing that they could play any Ingram Malmsteen, Randy Rhodes solo, any Rush song at the drop of a hat. Wow. And they're still in high school. And your question is interesting because I feel like uh, we rehearsed probably three or four times a week because it's all that it's the, it was like a drug, you know, it was mm-hmm. all we did, it was yeah. all we wanted to do. That's and awesome. uh, that flying metaphor, it, it really is because it just made us feel like we were flying. That's very cool. Um, it was really when you're that young and you, you have something, you know, comic books and rock and roll or something as opposed to skateboarding and bike riding and whatever. I mean, we were all on that too, but you know, we were, we were just enamored with rock music and, and uh, those guys wrote these incredible magnum opus kind of, uh, I guess Rush was probably the band's beast influence uh, overall. And uh, because when you kind of think about it, as far as like progressive metal, and I use the term metal loosely, Rush was probably the first one. And Mm -hmm. they were all into yes and, Right. And uh, King King Crimson and all of those bands that were just writing it, and and maybe early Pink Floyd, you know, mm-hmm. and um, there were a bunch of weird jazz bands that were like jazz rock bands that the guys in Rush were into, and it was no exception. Everybody in Watchtower sans me. I mean, I liked it, I got it, but I was more of a headbanger. Sure, sure. And uh, because uh, you know, I'm I give me Judas Priest over anything, any right. day, you know. If I had to take something to a deserted island, yeah. So and so you go ahead. I was just uh, no finish up. I was going to move on to the the rest of the your story here. <laughs> but no, finish yeah, up with yeah, the no, no. It was yeah the the watchtower thing. I mean, we you know we probably wrote the the first watchtower record three different times be, just because we felt like our equipment and our writing were were getting better and. You know, most of the writing credits were, must go to uh, the the rhythm section and, and or the you know the the band. It sounds me. They wrote all the lyrics and and uh, they wrote all those crazy songs that I sang. And uh, the my contribution would be more the melodies and uh, and how I was to fit all of these words into all of these instruments falling down the stairs at the speed of light uh, in time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I, that became my forte. And I think that that's how some of the, the bands that I, the projects that I'm involved in now, especially Howling Sycamore, uh, which has a lot of crazy, uh, proggy, doomy kind of, you know, long, you know, 10 minute songs. And they're just a huge journey of music. Uh, that's, that's where, that's, that's why and how I probably came to be in, involved in, in Howling Sycamore is because of that. But yeah, I mean, uh, Mike, Mike Portnoy and Chuck Schuldiner from Death, uh, were probably the biggest, uh, Gene, Gene Hoagland from, uh, Dark Angel who plays in a hundred bands as well. He's, hmm. he plays drums for Testament right okay. now, but he, he, he was actually in Death for a while and he was in the version of Death that wasn't just, you know, death metal or black metal. He was in the version of death. It was very progressive. Hmm. And they all cited Watchtower as an influence. That's very and, cool. uh, 
So but, that's kind of an yeah, honor, yeah. That's very cool. So and then you're in that band for like five or six years, and but you're it's not a full time thing. You're working at uh, Pantera's Pizza, and some of these guys come to recruit you for another band, a cover band. This is in like '87, called the band's called Onyx, and you took over for a girl singer in that band, and that band became Dangerous Toys. So who came up with the name Dangerous Toys? Because I, I've heard you say you thought it was kind of a weak name at the time, but everyone I've told when I say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to see Dangerous Toys or I'm interviewing the singer from Dangerous Toys, they go, wow, I like that name. That's a cool name. <laughs> Even in 2020. So who came up with that? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, 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 um, the way that it, the, that name came about is very similar to the way that my involvement with the group came about because, you know, they, they were looking to steal me. They knew me from Watchtower. I started moonlighting in the late 80s um, playing with other people, and they knew that. And it was mainly cover bands because at that point, Watchtower was not playing any covers. And if we did, it was side one of 2112 by Rush just as an encore. You know, it wasn't – we weren't – we were done with that. You know, mm-hmm. we were established and, sure. and uh, revered in the underground, you know, world but the and 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 we're trying to make records and we weren't trying to make it per se we were just we wanted to make great records and play music because uh for the right reasons and that's important the uh and a band that plays that kind of music that's a that's that's pretty much your aspiration anyway because ultimately you don't you don't think of selling a bunch of records when you're you're playing in jazzy weird times and you're, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you're sprinkling speed metal on top of, of, uh, you know, Pink Floyd and Rush. So anyway, um, they came into my work. I was working a, a pizza joint, like you said, and, uh, they were like, Hey dude, you know, we, we know who you are and our singer, we're, we're losing our singer and we got these gigs and you know what we do. I'd seen Onyx a couple times and, it's like, yeah, you guys look like you're having fun. Yeah, I'll help you guys out till you find somebody permanent. Mm. And so they, you know, look what happened. It blew right. up in their face. That's so awesome. I started working with them. We played, we played like two or three shows uh, under the new name. But because, you know, we, I started rehearsing with them, learning a bunch of their cover songs, and they had their own songs. And, but I didn't want to sing any of the old singer's lyrics. I want, you know, I would sing the, the bass player, Mike Watson, you know, he had written a few of of the songs already. And I was like, well, we can just keep, we can keep the songs that have your lyrics or, you know, we can keep the music you guys wrote and I'll just write lyrics over, over. I think the first song I wrote with Dangerous Toys is called Here Comes Trouble. And it did end up on the first, on the first record. Yeah. So. Yeah, so the name of the band, we're, we're literally at a uh, couple rehearsals, and um, and the phone rings, and it's the booking agent at the, you know, Onyx was like the house band at the rock bar, you know, in Austin, the premier rock bar. It's called The Back Room. Right. Not around anymore, of course, but it was world famous, you know, mid-level bands, headlining bands, you know. Uh, everyone played there: Ramones, Nazareth, Cheap Trick, uh, Armored Saint, Anthrax, Motorhead. You know, keep going. Pearl Jam. Uh, before all of these bands became uh, were global successes, their first U.S. tours, they always played this 
sort of medium-sized rock, stinky rock bar called the Back Room, and we were the house band there. So oh. Onyx was the house band. Onyx was kind of the house band. It played almost every weekend and um, was always adding new material. You know, anyway, I go jam with them. We get a set together. The phone rings. We hadn't even played a gig yet. Hey, well, I heard you guys got Jason from Watchtower. I want to book you guys. And we're like, well, we can't play under the name Onyx. He's like, well, come up with a name. What are you going to call yourself? And hold the, hold the phone. Drummer's holding the phone. He's going, what, what the hell are we going to call this band? And the guitar player's over there. Scott's over there noodling on his guitar. And he goes, how about, you know, I don't know, bad boys make dangerous toys or something like that. And I'll go, just call it dangerous toys. Just do that. And so me and Scott kind of just threw that wow. name out. We weren't even really thinking about it, hmm. but it was something that Scott said I that like made that. us really just sort of agree with that. It was an accidental, hmm. an accidental badass. It sounds you know kind of I mean? almost like, how they, like, yeah, they, how they came up with the name Motley Crue. Like somebody just said, Oh, this is a Motley looking crew. It's kind of a similar kind of story almost. Yeah, because I think they were called something else prior. Christmas or something. I don't know what. Yeah, it was Christmas or yeah. You think you're right? Yeah. You know what and, else? Is, uh, and go ahead. I was just gonna say what else is cool about Dangerous Toys was the artwork, and I thought it was interesting that um, Tommy Pons, the guy who designed the clown, you guys did this. I know with Howling Sycamore, you've never met that band, and you do all the work over the um, you know the computer emails and and phone and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. back then, before emails and all that you just called this guy up and you described like the artwork you wanted. And then he said he FedExed it to you. And I guess he must've nailed it on the first draft. I mean, it looks great. Is that, was that the first draft? That oh, he dude. Sent over? Uh, well, n- no, no, but it's very, very similar. The, the first draft um, you can find online, it has like a purple and black, uh, sort of a, a bullseye okay. looking logo. Yeah. And, um, the uh, it didn't have a it didn't have a logo it didn't say dangerous toys on it it was just like you know purple and black spiral circles bullseye looking thing with the clown face just a face um and the hair was about the same i think the ears were a little bit bigger kind of clown ears i guess you could say <laughs> okay. and everyone kind of has the visual they were yeah. they were the ears were a little bigger the uh the teeth were like um H.R. Geiger's alien teeth. They were these long kind of fangy looking things like razor kind of looking things. And they were, they were covered in, in uh, saliva. They were, it was, it was pretty gory and in, in a little <laughs> bit of a way, but it was still kind of classy. Yeah. Cause it was real streamlined. Okay. And you know, his face is long jawbone and long, you know, very kind of weird uh, pronounced facial features and uh, he's always the clown has always had that that long face and uh so of course the red clown nose but with the high jaw bones and the open mouth the gaping fangs and all that and the eyes were whited out there was no pupil hmm. so it was pretty like whoa that's a, that's fucking scary looking <laughs> you know it was really yeah. freaky looking because it was a cross between it you know the clown from oh, yeah. Pennywise, uh-huh. and 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 maybe those stupid clowns on uh, the mo- the '80s movie K- Killer Clowns from Outer, Outer Space. Space, yeah. And and H.R. Giger's a- Alien. It was kind of like a cross between all of those things. And to back up a little bit, 
So we had to, you know, we were only together about six months before the band got signed. Like it happened like literally overnight. Yeah, you were and, discovered in the back room, but I know you guys played the second ever South by Southwest. Was that before you got discovered or after you had been signed? No, that's when, that's when, that's how that works. Is like you be, becoming discovered is, is before you're signed. Becoming discovered is when someone sees you and goes, oh my God, you, you know, I want to write checks for, to you and ah. put you in the studio and put you on the road and give you a deal and yada, yada, yada. So that's how that sort of like timeline goes. So uh, um, if I back up one more time, it, it will kind of start to have a, a, a timeline for you. So okay. uh, 87, I start working with these guys and we're called Dangerous Toys and we're playing the local bars. Uh, that would have been October of 87 by March of 87. We hadn't really done a whole lot, but we were still playing around and that would have been, Oh no, March of 88 is when someone said, oh, God, that's like four, that's, that's five months after I started playing with them. Wow. So yeah. Uh, so, March of 88. That. so that's pretty crazy. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. March, March, yeah, it's real quick. March of 88 was when uh, Celine Armbeck from SBK Songs, which was then just a publishing company. I say just a publishing company, like, oh, they're, you're, you're just a publishing company. But anyway, they had clout and from Los Angeles and was there because at the very first South by Southwest in 80, March of 87, a year earlier, Celine Armbeck had been in town and was just at a, at, probably at the back room and saw, or maybe downtown oh. somewhere, saw Onyx play. She saw Onyx play, okay. but it was but it was Onyx with all the toys dudes, mm-hmm. fans me right. Sure, I'm right. not there, so they have the girl singer right. So she comes back a year later to basically sign Onyx, oh. and so she's downtown again watching Onyx play, and Onyx had just gotten some new dudes. So she's got her new band and they're playing and playing the songs and Celine Armbeck, who I didn't know her. I didn't know who, you know, I, you know, we I hadn't, hadn't met her yet. She's downtown watching Onyx and she's looking for some locals to talk to. And she was like, this band's been around a while. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But see, this is her new band. She's right. like, man, I was here last year and saw this, this totally electrified, just kick-ass rock and roll band. These guys were crazy looking and she was the singer, but it was a different band. Something is not right here. Mm. And he's like, well, they're, they're called dangerous toys. They have this thrash metal singer singing for them. And they're, they're, they're blitz. They're, you got to go see them. They're just killing it. And she's like, take me right now. And they <laughs> paid the bill. And she didn't, she had just met this guy and this guy worked at the back room. Mm. And so she hops in a cab with this guy. His name's Bobby McNeely. So she hops in a cab and they run down. It was, it was only a few miles uh, over the river, at, uh, you know, just south, south of downtown. And so they, go, they come see it's on a Sunday night, second ever South By. And back then, oh. South By was purely music. It wasn't a film festival. There was no high tech because it's fucking 1987 right. or 88, right? Yeah. So there's no digital anything. It's vinyl and cassettes and just art. You know, there's no there's no film festival. There's no tech world. It wasn't a trade show. It literally was a hotbed for talent for 
managers and publishers and shit like that to come down to record labels and shit to come discover talent. Yeah, that's so cool. And now it's a complete, I know, right? Yeah. It was all about the little guy back then, and yeah. it's not now. It's just a, a, it's a trade show now. And that's, that's fine. What, yeah, see, that's I'm fine. from Seattle. We used to have a thing called Bumper Shoot. It was a free, it was a similar kind of music festival. It's free. And now it's like become this yeah. big thing. They have, you know, comedians and it's, tickets or prices are through the roof, and it's totally changed. So it sounds similar. by a wristband? Yeah, probably something like that. Yep. Yep, yep. Well, their wristbands are like a thousand bucks now. So anyway, so yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm not even fucking kidding. Yeah. So anyway, um, because you know they have bands like Metallica play. Oh, we got a new record out. Let's play South by Southwest. See, it's a it's a trade show. Uh, yeah. See what I'm saying? It's not about man. I heard about this killer new band. Yeah, because Metallica really needs the exposure, so they really need to get uh, noticed. Right. <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll, we'll, we'll understand that, you know, when you're a trade show, it's all about your new product that's coming out next year. Yeah. And Metallica was playing an Xbox thing and it was for the new Metallica rock band game that was coming out. Okay. Gotcha. That's what that was. So that's totally been a while ago. So, but anyways, back yeah, then, so the, yeah. she saw you guys out anyway, South by Southwest. So she, she comes down. Yeah. She sees this. There's only like 15 people in the audience. You know, oh, we're, shit. we're first, we're appalled. First, we're appalled that we're playing on a Sunday night when we yeah. just played there the Friday night and we got talked in, talked into doing it by the agent there because we were the house band. We were hot shit. We were big fish, little pond kind of thing. Right. Okay. And we were, we weren't looking to be signed. We weren't trying to be rock stars. We were just having fun partying, and you know we were twenty something years old, twenty one years old. You know it didn't matter. We didn't care, and uh, so we were just happy to be playing rock and roll with our shitty jobs and whatever, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so she comes in and says, you know, sees our probably terrible. You know, we played cover songs. We played some original stuff. And, and you know, it's after the show. And Celine Armbeck from SBK walks up to me. And I'm just standing there drinking a beer. And uh, that was back when I drank. I've been sober for what seems like forever now. But so wow. I'm just sitting there. And she comes up. And I am Celine Armbeck from SBK. And you guys were great. And I want to talk about a publishing deal. Cause I think that we can record you guys and do some stuff. And you know, MTV is super hot. Sure. Yeah. At that time it's, it's, it's 88. You so know, it's part of how and, you look, um, not just how you sound too. And you guys looked cool. You had long hair. You had well, yeah. I mean, you're, you, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we were crazy looking. I was wearing combat boots and bullet belts from my thrash metal days, but I had some kind of big hair and makeup on and shit, you know, mm-hmm. and we were playing butt rock, you know, we were playing something <laughs> similar to, to, you know, ZZ Top and Aerosmith meets, you know, I don't know, LA Guns and Faster Pussycat or something, you know, dare I say Guns and Roses since I have red hair and I sing high and I have tattoos, but right. ultimately that's what the, that's what's hot at 88. Everyone's sure. looking for a new GNR, right? So, Absolutely. So anyway, I kind of dissed her. Oh. Chuck, I was like, I was like, I was like, nah, you know, I'm not even in this band. I'm in this cool thrash metal band called Watchtower, but they're standing right over there. Go talk to them. They're cool. Go ahead, man. You know, and I think I dissed her. I might've been kind of dickish to her. <laughs> and I did, I wasn't meaning, I wasn't trying to, you yeah. know, it's like I was pissed because man, it's Sunday night. I wish I was, you know, at home or something, you know, whatever. So the funny thing is, is, 
she hung out with them all night long. And they called me the next day, the toys dudes. They okay. called me and they said, hey, that, that lady from L.A., she was legit. Wow. She was, she was totally legit. And, uh, and uh, you know, because, I mean, you know, there's no, there's no internet. There's no way to look up SBK music yeah. or SBK songs and look up her name. You can't just sit there, hold on, I'm going to see if you're legit before I talk to you. Right. You know, like you can now. Yeah. And, um so, you know, they had the extensive hangout with her to figure she was legit. And they called me and go, man, she's legit. And it, it's, let's, let's go back one month prior to that. I was dating a girl that had sent a cassette tape. One side was a live performance of Dangerous Toys. And the other side was the new, brand new 1980, April of 87 demos that Watchtower had just cut. So same singer, two completely different, uh, band, you know, styles, styles of music, yeah. same singer. Right. And so she had sent that to an intern buddy of hers who was working with a, a management company also in Los Angeles called Tapco Entertainment. Now they're called Union Entertainment. But anyway, so it's a funny story about how that went down for the reason that, uh, that guy out there, Tim Heine's his name, you know, he imagine the, the, you know, the, the rock and roll manager guy, just stacks of demo cassettes on, on his desk. And every mm -hmm. day, and this is a, this is a true story. Every day he grabbed like three or four off the top of those, a top of that, you know, towering cassette pile. And he, any climb in his eighties Corvette and he'd put it, he'd pop a tape in and uh, and if and if the first song didn't grab him, he'd roll down the window and chuck it out the window. <laughs> it's littering on the 101 on the Ventura Freeway or whatever in in, in, L, in L.A. County or whatever, right? So, and then he'd uh, and and then he'd pop in another one. And same thing. Nope, out the window. Nope, out the window. Well, he popped it in and heard "Teasing Pleasing" by Dangerous Toys. Mm like a live, a live recording of our earliest, most archaic version of that song. He heard that song and he pulled over and picked up his giant brick, like, you know, old army cell phone that he actually, his, his car phone, you know, <laughs> sure, yeah, I remember with those. the curly cord on it. And, yeah. he, and he calls his intern, he calls his, he calls his intern from his eighties Corvette and in 1988, early or 88 and goes, who are these guys? Get me on the phone. Where'd you get this? Where, where'd you get this tape? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta hear and see these guys. I gotta meet these guys. So he had been calling us and talking to me and trying to get me to quit Watchtower. And he had been calling us mm. saying, you know, I, I think teasing, pleasing is a hit, man. We got to do something with this. And he was basically like super cool guy. Uh, wasn't blowing smoke up my ass. He he totally believed in the material. He was like, he, you know, I remember something Tim told me. He was like, where were you about 10 years ago? You know, it's rare we find somebody who can belt it like that in Los Angeles. It was, you yeah. know, a bunch of just clowny bullshit, you know. And he really liked, he, he respected what I was trying to do and he respected what I was doing with Watchtower and everything. But he really thought that the iron was hot because of the GNR and the whole LA scene and sunset strip was, you know, banging right then. Right. Sure. 
And here we are, something different being we're from Texas. Right. Right. And uh, really liked it. And he called uh, He called me about every week, and he'd stay in touch with Mark, the drummer from the Toys. And so, you know, we had been talking to him for only a few weeks, Chuck. And then this, we meet Celine at, via the South by Southwest. And she had never heard of Tapco Entertainment or any Tim Heine. So we put them together. Oh. They had lunch. They had lunch the week later. And they made a plan. And okay. there was a contract that said there was a contract drawn out by both of them. It was a production company, publishing deal, all-inclusive management deal by both, both companies, Tapco Entertainment and SPK Songs. Publishing management saying we if we get you a major recording contract within 90 days we own you wow basic basically right okay if we don't get you a major recording contract you know that you think is doable and signable um in 90 days just burn this contract tear it up okay. and you're free to go that's a pretty good deal and, 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 uh, we, we never left town. You know how bands like, well, I'm packing up the band, moving to LA and going to eat, you know, bologna sandwiches for six years, to, however long it takes me to make it. We never, none of that ever happened. So they us. went out and got the, the record contract for you from Sony or Columbia. I think. Well, well, we had, we had to showcase, but the oh, okay. point is Chuck is we didn't leave. We did we slept in our own bed every night. That's nice. We didn't sleep on the street or in the back of our car trying to make it. Right. Like, like literally they brought seven different major recording companies, record companies. Oh. And we play, and we played our home turf. That's nice. We played the back, we played the back room. They came and saw us at the back room in front of our home crowd. That's very cool. That makes it a lot easier. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of how LA guns and faster pussycat and guns and roses did it. You know, once they got their shit together, all the labels are out there. All right. the managers are out there. Yeah. They just heard, oh, shit, you got to go see this band and that band. And that they just signed them all up in one year. You know? gotcha. So then you get like, signed. Literally, you know. and, and then you get signed. And then you're, you uh, work with producer Max Norman for that first album. And he's a legendary That's producer. Right. He's known for his work with Ozzy and Megadeth. And you said that you... Crazy Train. All, yeah. all, all you got to say is Crazy, crazy train. train. And you yep. basically live with him for yep. three or four months. And you said that you got to hear a lot of Randy Rhodes stories from him. Is there one story about that he told you about Randy Rhodes that sticks out? Not necessarily. Just the fact that I was working with a, a name producer was enough for me. Um, I don't... You know, I worked with Roy Thomas Baker... Yeah, a couple of years later, and heard Queen songs, and the the only one, the, the only Freddie Mercury story. Yeah, exactly. But the only Freddie Mercury story uh, that that I recall, uh, well, there's a few of them, but he would Freddie would stay up all night partying and like go knock on Roy's door at like five a.m. going. Get up, dear! Get up! It's time to go to the studio. And he'd been up all night and was ready to go sing. He was ready to go work at the studio at like 5 a.m. He just thought that the world like revolved around what they were ready to do. Wow. You know? And the crazy. thing is, is in the 70s back then, the studio was probably open. Yeah. There was probably someone at the studio doing something. Right. Probably not something productive at 5 a.m., but it was probably... <laughs> 
someone in there doing something good or bad. You know? Right. Well, speaking so, of bad stuff. So, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was just saying the Freddy stories, I, I remember uh, he was just a, a an animal. You know, he oh, was yeah. ready to just to kick ass all the time, you know. And in the Randy stories, I feel like, um, you know, Max was lucky to work with such a talent and then have, you know, to, because of his tragedy. Yeah. You know, and there's just no telling what would have become of Randy Rhodes afterwards. I mean, he would have been able to relish in all of his uh, favor. Absolutely. You know? yeah, like Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was in his, in his 20s as well. It's yeah. the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's hideous. Terrible, but yeah. So you're recording, and this is Hollywood in '88. So this is when you are, uh, you did leave Austin, you're because you're recording in Hollywood. You're on that infamous Sunset Strip in '88. You said it wasn't uncommon to just walk down the street and see like L.A. Guns or Guns and Roses just walking around. I mean, that must have been kind of surreal. Oh yeah, someone from any of those bands was was always hanging out at a bar. You know, the Cat House, or uh, there was a bunch of different ones. Uh, Exposure Fifty Four. Uh, of course, you know, the typical rainbow and, uh, the Roxy and stuff like that. There was more too. I just can't think of the names of them right now. And, you know, you'd see Axel every once in a while and Slash every once in a while. And I mean, they were busy as shit. They were blowing up. So, you know, they weren't around that much, but when they were coming home from doing something, you, they would go out and you'd see them. Well, you were pretty busy too, right? I mean, you guys had, yeah, we were, we were in yeah, yeah, yeah. So we make the record that was, you know, over, you know, around the end of 88, like uh, through Christmas, you know, we, we, uh, we record the record and it comes out in June. I'm sorry, May 9th of 1989 is when the record came out. And we had shot a video, a couple of videos, and we were We'd be in and out of LA making videos or, uh, you know, just working on material or whatever, but we never really left Austin. Okay. We never really like, you know, so your home permanently moved. Yeah. Oh yeah. We never really moved to Los Angeles because, uh, and whenever we went out to Los Angeles, it was in a, in a long, in a, in a, in a hidden, uh, you know, sort of like ignorance, we were footing the bill for everything because everything the label did pay for at the time, we learned a word, that word is recoupable. Right. Everything had to be paid back via record sales or t-shirt sales or, you know, money the band had garnered from touring or whatever, and, uh, eventually had to pay those bills. Um, so yeah, but anyway, that's that's just how it is. They don't tell you that when you think about all the glitz and glamour sure. about you know getting a record deal, and you know that's when the real work begins. You think you just kick back after yeah. that. That's, you got the songs don't sing themselves; they don't write themselves. You you have to be, you know, there's where your obsession and your possession with your craft has to kick into super high gear. Sure. Well, so then this is kind of your your peak. You're, you got the teasing and pleasing. It was on Dial MTV for like three months, I think. And then you had the Scared, the single, and the music video came out. You had a song on the Shocker soundtrack. You tour with LA Guns, Tortora, Junkyard, three of my favorite bands. Tour with the Colt and Bonham. Did you learn anything from mm-hmm. touring like with the Colt? Because they had been pretty successful at that point. Um, did, they, did they give you any pointers or anything? Or 
Not necessarily. They were super nice to us. Um, Ian, the singer, gave me uh, some leather pants. He gave me some cool jewelry. And he was probably just cleaning out his closet. But anyway, <laughs> I, I took it. Yeah, I was very gracious. And uh, and uh, Billy Duffy gave one of my guitar players a, a Gibson Les Paul. I think it had a crooked neck on it. But, you know, it was probably a probably an 800 thousand dollar guitar or something you know eight, eight you know maybe it maybe a thousand dollar guitar wow. and uh they were they were nice to us That's and cool. um yeah it was very cool i rode on ian's bus with him quite a bit uh i think what the deal is is he was trying to and and don't don't really quote me on this this is just the feeling that i got that he he was trying to not drink like he might have been struggling with some oh. some uh, some drinking you know he wanted to drink and i wasn't really i didn't really party okay. i mean I, I i could have a drink if i wanted to yeah. but i had to make sure i had a day off you know if i was sure. gonna go there you know and i was really just you know it's work being on the road and you if really you're, are if more you're into gonna, the music if than, you're going to stay up uh, all night and yeah, if you're going to stay up all night and do stupid shit to yourself, uh, you, all you need is a good hour to be good. Yeah. You know, it's like you got 23 hours a day to be an asshole. As long as that one hour that you got to be kick ass. Yeah. It's kick ass. Right. Right. So at this point, you're, you and guys, so, yeah. Sorry, go on. So, yeah, I mean, we were, we were, we were doing well. What, what I did learn is that when, you're playing in clubs and you're touring with, you know, junkyard and LA guns and stuff like that. Um, we did Europe with faster pussycat. It's, it's a little bit more close knit, meaning that you're seeing the guys in the bands that you're playing with every day, all the time. Mm. And with the cult, you know, they each have their own bus and you, I mean, we were on tour with the band for like a week before we even met them. Damn. And that's a normal. I, we learned that that's normal. Right. You know, I've, I've played a couple of shows with the Scorpions, one of my favorite bands. Never met them. <laughs> Lame. Yeah, I've heard that a lot from musicians. Yeah, well, that's a, well you, yeah. you're, you're not going to go knock on their dressing right. room door. That's you know, the thing. I don't, like, they don't yeah. know who you are. You know? Yeah, because I've interviewed a lot of comedians. Just, and comedians say that you uh-huh. guys share the green room. But with musicians, you go all have separate dressing rooms or buses and stuff. So, yeah, you don't always get to meet the people you, you do a show with. Yeah, but it's more, it's like that when it's on a smaller scale, is what mm-hmm. I meant. Like when okay. you're doing a club tour or a small theater tour or, you know, where your sound checks are kind of overlapping, you know, you're taking turns sound checking and setting okay. up and all that. Everyone's sort of, uh, you know, it's this cohesive day day in, day out of like, hey, dude, what's up? You know, and you're hanging out and shit. And, um, it wasn't like that when you get in arenas because everything's so big, sure. it's sort of spread out. Yeah, and there's no cell phones. Hey, dude, meet me in catering. Yeah. You know that didn't happen. It's, right. It's it's way. It's just a different world now. Yeah. So, so anyways, you're you're touring with the cult. The record company pulls you off the road, and um, they want you to go back in and make another record. So that's when you worked with uh, Roy Thomas Baker, legendary producer. Um, and then in 1991, you get the call from management that you're going on tour with. This is even better than the cult. This is Alice Cooper, Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Metal Church for the Operation Rock and Roll Tour. Um, now, I know you got to meet Lemmy, and I heard a little bit of that. Um, you met Alice. He was complimentary of your song, Scared, which is about him. Um, and then you got to write on a tank 
with Alice Cooper, Rob Halford, and Judas Priest. So take me back to that point. At that point, do you feel like you've just made it, like you're king of the world, you're on a tank with, you know, three of your idols? Yeah, I'm I'm pinching myself the whole time. There's a photograph. It might be searchable online. It might be on one of my pages somewhere, uh, the picture that we're talking about. And that was a press day for that tour. And um, for some reason, Metal Church wasn't there. And for some reason, Motorhead wasn't there. But it was, it was oh, okay. Los Angeles press, press day. And it was me and Mark from the Toys. And it was Rob Halford. And it was Alice Cooper. And there weren't, weren't anybody else there. So it was three out of the five or whatever okay. and you know represent representing so me and mark represented and then uh alice and rob and we don't know what to expect our publicist is telling us how it's going to go down uh ricky rackman was the uh he was you know he was the the, the voice and the face of uh, headbangers ball oh, on mtv him, yeah. at the time so so he's doing uh yeah he's super cool and he he's so he's emceeing the press day and sort of like fending the questions from press and it was held at the whiskey and uh there's you know lines of photographers out front of the whiskey and they had brought this tank and this jeep because operation rock and roll was a sort of a spinoff of the operation desert storm that was happening right so the posters are camouflage and it's got all the logos and there's a tank with a guitar and a da 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 you know so, you know, they bring this tank and they're rolling down Sunset and, and Rob and Alice are sort of inside the gun turrets. <laughs> and the managers are, are over there and the and the publicists are over there and they're like, how come Jason's not up there? Can y'all get Jason up there? And Jason, yeah. get up there. Because I'm like, no, dude, that's Alice and Rob. I mean, they're yeah. the stars of the fucking show. You know, those are, I, I can't be what you're going to, Oh my God. So I get up there and I'm sitting up there on a tank riding down sunset <laughs> with two guys that I worship. Sure. And I'm, the whole time I'm just going be cool. Be cool. Just be <laughs> cool. Just be cool. People are taking uh, pictures right now and there are rock royalty, like literally inches from my elbow. That's so cool. Yeah, I was a kid. It was just, it, it, I just felt like I was a little kid meeting Evil Knievel or somebody like that. That's you know? awesome. And then you had three music, yeah, it was great. music videos for that album, The Hellacious Acres. So you're still getting an airplay on MTV. Um, and now this is kind of around the time when grunge starts taking off. So at what point does the record company drop you? Because you didn't even get a follow-up to The Hellacious Acres, which again, it had three videos that got played on MTV, but... Yeah, it was, it was so, it was, you know, the record deal, and this was very common to get like a seven album deal, you know, mm -hmm. and we only got to make two of them. Well, you know, a lot of our cohorts, I call the class of 89, they were getting, they were getting signed and dropped, you know, a year later. Jeez. So the fact that we had a pretty much, you know, a three year run of uh, kind of running with big dogs was really really lucky for us mm -hmm. and um one of the greatest things that i i i will never ever forget and i and i tell this this little quip uh quite often actually is doing press 
um, me and when, when we would do these these press days, uh, it was usually me and Mark, uh, the drummer, doing most of them. And when there was like multiple like interviews to be done in a matter of days, we would you know we would set up interviews with the other guys. You know, the other guys would do some, and me and Mark would do some, and I would do some by myself, etc. And whatever was a good match, you know, that gave a good interview. So, um, Mark said in more than one interview, but it was a really good thing that I didn't ever have to go fishing. Hey, tell him that thing. You know, it was just something that he said that, that made a lot of sense to us. And that is that, you know, this is all fleeting. Like how good or bad you're doing is going to change, you know, the next five minutes, it's going to be different. Hmm. Um, that one day you're selling records the next day you're not, you know, it's like the stock market. Yeah. Like one day you got money to pay your bills and the next day you don't. And, you know, being able to sustain this is, uh, is kind of like, you know, you, you, you need to be in bed with the next new trend and you need to be able to make sure you have some insurance somehow to keep your record deal or, you know, wear the costume that's popular or whatever it is. Because we knew we weren't Bon Jovi and we knew we weren't Alice Cooper. We knew we weren't Judas Priest, all super established and had obviously been able to have hit after hit after hit. Yeah. So with the, with the, this new style of rock music that they called grunge, which I, I don't really like the term. It's as bad as hair metal. I don't like the term hair metal and I don't like the term grunge because it's all rock and roll to me. Mm-hmm. And whether I loved it or hated it is not important to the fact that why was my, you know, the people that like my style of butt rock, cock rock, whatever you, hair metal, if you will. Yeah. Uh, why are they so mad at this new style? Is it because now for them to follow a trend, they have to buy a completely new wardrobe? (laughs) Is it because they're not into punk rock like these Seattle bands are? You know, they're all into punk rock and moody, broody, shoegazy kind of shit, you know? Joy Division and New Wave and, you know, old cool punk rock from England, Buzzcocks and whatever, you know. And it's bringing in this new sound, even though they still like Kiss and Black Sabbath. Right. A lot of the same influences. You know, Soundgarden, Soundgarden sounds like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, but they're from Seattle and they fit. They're sure. a cog in the wheel of this new sound that's taking over the world. Yeah. So it basically cleaned off all of the crap that had gotten signed because all the labels were trying to scoop up anyone anyone with red hair and tattoos and sang real high. Yeah. There were a lot of crappy bands that got signed. You can you can throw us in the crap pile too if you want. I don't care. No, I love we you were guys. lucky. We were thanks. We were lucky to be there. You have to think about it from our side. Right. Absolutely. Like I wasn't getting angry like the people that love dangerous toys, that's great. And, and I was having a blast just writing and playing rock and roll because it's what I do. Sure. Now, if someone, if someone is, you know, wants to just follow the trends, they're going to leave you behind. But the ones that are upset because they have to buy a new wardrobe or they're very faithful to what it is that you do, that's great too. But you know what? There's going to be a lot of anger and a lot of 
bad and stupid things said that's going to make us look bad. I remember all these petitions to try to get MTV Headbangers Ball back on the oh, air. God, yes. Okay, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't sign it. You wouldn't? Oh, I wouldn't God, I sign Headbangers it. Ball. No. Why did they ever cancel it? Well, you that? know why I wouldn't sign it? Because when you say Headbangers Ball and then you play Bon Jovi and Poison. Yeah. Uh. That's not headbanging music. True, true. Yeah, they, it was kind of a weird mix. What they would, they, they would even yeah. tell you that. They yeah. would even tell you that. They need to just call it rock show, and I think yeah, they did true. for a while. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. so in 1994, speaking of angry, you guys released the album Pissed. I think it was independently. I love this very underrated record, in my opinion. I love The Law is Mine, I agree. Promise the Moon. I actually woke up this morning with uh, the song Strange in my head. Loser, also very catchy. And then the title track was yeah. obviously one of my favorites, Pissed. Is that song about someone in particular, like the old record company, or is it just a general feeling of being pissed off? Well... That's kind of where I was going a second ago. Okay. All, the, all this anger about trends and and yeah. the change and, you know, MTV's not playing real rock and roll anymore. They're playing this bullshit that's called grunge that I don't understand. And way, way, way. And they look weird and they're dyeing their hair pink and blue and they're, you know, they're wearing these baggy clothes and what am I going to do? And oh, no, me, my, mo, right? So everyone's crying about it. And, uh, you know, fuck, fuck grunge. It's like the same thing when punk rock came out. Punk was liberating. It was, punk stands for freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's what rock and roll originally stood for. Sure. And they're missing the point. If it's, This ain't a fashion show. Right. And uh, that's kind of what it was. And, and, and uh, much like punk, uh, grunge was kind of the anti-populist. Uh, you know, we're, we're we're not doing this because it's popular. We're doing this because it's new, mm-hmm. and it took off and became what it became. And so, we write these songs. We're we're still going to play, you know, dirty rock and roll. So we write the Pissed album. You know, we had a couple lineup changes that you know took us for a loop for a second, but we still kept writing the same kind of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it. It, it it didn't it didn't dawn on us to 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 try to follow any trend and that sort of that our sound changed quite a bit because of the lineup changes on the on the artist formerly known as record but we'll get right, to that yeah so the pissed album is not in any form or fashion a fuck you to the to the industry to grunge to all of that stuff uh, it is. It is literally the lyrics are about um, how you don't really know me. How can you say this and that and the other thing when you don't you don't know what I like? You don't know where I'm from, and you think that you do. Hmm. And you're you're telling me it's the it's it's not even rebellion or anything. It's like. I'm angry because you're just like literally telling me how it's going to be. And you don't know, we don't care to ask what it is about anything that I, that I think that how I feel. And, uh, that was a bummer to me. So I wrote that and I, uh, I think it came out pretty good for, you know, what the, the message of the lyric, because it's real simple. I can see it's going to be a long day because I got to deal with these assholes, you know? Right. 
you know, uh, you're, you're, you're choking me. You're, you're holding me down by saying all these things and it's not even how I feel. You're putting words in my mouth. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so, so that's more or less what it was now. Unbeknownst to me, the, uh, the liner notes came out and I, it could have been my manager and I, I don't hold any grudge. I, I don't know who wrote the liner notes, but there's this long winded, like, you know, this fucked up system, you know, this, we, <laughs> we, we love the people who stuck by us to all the radio stations and, and lawyers and, and, you know, thanks for the, all the, everyone who stuck up for us and, da, 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 and you know, da, 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 and, and it's like, you know, maybe it was that some people in my camp, maybe not even mm. standing right next to me on stage, not even my bandmates, but you know, my, maybe my manager was upset more than I was because he knew we weren't going to be as lucrative. I don't know, hmm. but you know, uh, there were a lot of bands and, and industry people that felt like that, that like, you know, like a, a dinosaur band, like Loverboy, which I love Loverboy, but I remember seeing him being interviewed about it and he goes, yeah, Nirvana ruined my career. It's like, well, dude, your, your shit came out in like, you know, 10 years before, you know, <laughs> 12 years before, before right. this happened, what are you talking about? And it was interesting, you know, cause some, and that's what I didn't like. People are interviews turned to that, you know, rock and roll oh. interviews were about, so what do you think of this new thing? Grunge, huh? Are you selling as many records as you were last week? You know? And I'm like, who, what? I don't want to talk about how many records I've sold. Let's talk about, let's celebrate rock and roll together. Right. So at that point, anyway, though, you, you were dropped from that label you're doing independent and you had the artist formerly known as, so is this point dangerous toys? Is this more still a full-time thing or are you going to, you guys have to get day jobs and it's more of a side thing or how, how does that work? Well, yeah, we, you know, a smart musician, whether they have any rock and roll cloud or not has a, has a, some kind of day job. And that's just normal, especially now. Yeah. Because uh, the digital world, you know, Spotify pays fractions of a cent per per stream or download, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a it's completely watered down. It's it's the uh, there's no dollar in it at all. It's just fractions and fractions of pennies, and so no one's making any money on that. Um, there was something that happened last year or maybe the year before that and it, it went to court and I don't really know the outcome of it, but it was just an interesting factoid. And that is that Peter Frampton, you know, from the seventies, Peter Frampton, oh, you know, yeah, I heard you talk got about huge, this. huge hits. You got huge hits, you know, the yeah. Ooh, baby, I love your way. He's killing it. Right. And it's on, it's on the radio every day. It's on the radio and, you know, 10 countries as we speak, you know, it's sure. making money all the time. Well, Spotify, you know, for like, for like 17 million streams or spins or downloads or whatever, he got 1200 bucks. It's crazy. So you made enough to pay back your record company. Cause like you said, you had to pay back everything they gave you and you got a gold record for your first no, album. No, no, it doesn't really work like that. Like that. Let's say, you know, your, your record's still in print yeah. and you're lucky if it is because of the digital world still in print. So you can buy the CD somewhere. Um, but it's mainly downloads, you know, yeah. uh, at that point by, by nineties, it was still 
CDs were sure. still kind of new and the downloading and stuff, you know, but they weren't doing vinyl anymore. Yeah. So that was weird. So it was CDs and maybe cassettes sometimes. Um, and, uh, yeah, we make the piss record. It comes out on, on, uh, CD and cassette, not vinyl. Mm. And we tour, uh, we record the record in LA with, with, uh, with Mike Watson, uh, March of 94, we come home, the bass player quits, Mike Watson quits and we get Michael Hannon from Salty Dog to do the tour on bass. Mm. So we do a couple hundred shows. Uh, Michael Hannon goes back to Ohio where he's from. He was living in Hollywood at the time, but, Mm. um, he went back home to Ohio. Uh, we started writing without Mike Watson and without Mike Hannon on bass. I played bass on all the demos, same engineer and producers that did, uh, pissed, did the artist formerly in Texas with me on bass. And the songwriting was different because we had lost a couple of original members in 94 on the Pissed album. We got Paul Lydell from Dirty Looks. Uh, we were huge Dirty Looks fans. So it was like a totally, he was a huge Dangerous Toys fan. So it was kind of, we were kind of, you know, gay for each other, you know, it was, it was a great match. And <laughs> yeah. we were really, we were close. It was sure. awesome. He's just great. He's yeah. just so good. Like bro love, total bro sure. down. Love that. Love that band. Love that guy. Well, yeah. And you would end up uh, later is, being the singer of Dirty Looks, which we'll get to that, of course, too. But Yeah, well, kind of. So <laughs> um, the uh, huge fan, I mean, huge Dirty Looks fan. And we all were. So, you know, 94, we get him. We go make the record, you know. Uh, and then we do the tour with Mike Hannon on bass because Mike quit, went to school for a while. He rejoined us in 99. But uh, the point is, is we made artists with as a four piece and toured it as a four piece. And the material was very different. I mean, there's a song that's kind of sounds like Smashing Pumpkins. There's mm-hmm. a song in there that's kind of heavy, like Pantera or something. There's a song that sounds like Ministry. This, this is all, I'm just spitballing right here as to where the, the tunes were different. Sure. And what it, what it was is because since we had lost Mike Watson and it, it was, it was just such a weird time and, and no one can say that they weren't affected by it. No one can say, Oh, fuck that. You know, we tried to just ignore that the whole time and just be that and, Dude, I, I, you know, everywhere I went, there was this new sound, you know, that I would hear and it crept into my songwriting. Sure. And we made a record where I'm not saying baby, baby, baby and singing the blues all the time. I started writing, you know, some of it's kind of love songs. Some of it, some of it's actually softer than your typical dangerous toys, rock and roll, boogie, woogie. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it was much heavier. So the artist formerly known as it's called the artist formerly known as Dangerous Toys, kind of like the Prince take right. spinoff. Yeah, because of the because of the material and because of the of the lineup changes. Yeah, and you sure, actually same singer, yeah. guitar player, drummer, but you yeah. thought of changing your name, but you just you'd use that as the title for the album. But no, I think there's some good too. I like heard it all. I like share the kill. It, it is definitely a little bit of a departure, but. 
Um, and then you did a lot of other uh, different bands during the last 20 years or so. You've, you, you've gone back with Watchtower uh, a little bit. You've, you've done Broken Teeth, which you described as a, a ACDC but pissed. Uh, Igniter, which is kind of uh, you've described as Dungeons and Dragons metal. You've got uh, a bunch of tribute bands. Sad Wings as Judas Priest. Kill Em All as uh, Metallica. Sick as Kiss. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, Texas Metal Outlaws is that that's is that covers tributes as, as well? Is that like a one time thing? And then uh, Howling Sycamore. That was uh, that was a real that was the Texas Metal Outlaws was a one time project yeah. of just a bunch of tech, Texas metal guys, and the the record is um, there's a couple of good songs, but it's kind of you know the the recording sessions were you know there's a lot of people turning in tracks and they're inconsistent with each other. And it was a fun little project, but it's not, it's not a band. Yeah. Yeah. And then how they hadn't done a show in 25 years. So (laughs) that's, there's that, (laughs) uh, sad wings play sad wings plays once a year. Uh, kill them all plays maybe twice a year. So those, those tribute things are just for fun. Yeah. That's cool though. Yeah. And then the Howling Sycamore. And, uh, yeah, never, it's a blast. You've never played live with Howling Sycamore because you never met those guys. You've had two albums, but you've done it um, through the power of the internet and stuff, right? That's right. Yeah. And then Evil United. Right. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm re- yeah, Evil United has three records out. Howling Sycamore has two records out. Broken Teeth has been around 20 years. Um, we have like eight records out. Uh, none of these, none of these are, are really new at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Igniter, Igniter has a new record coming out in, uh, in August called, uh, the golden age of black magic. Oh. And, uh, Howling Sycamore is, those guys are writing, they're writing a third Howling Sycamore record right now. That's cool. And I'm excited to hear what that, what that's going to be because that material is a trip. Yeah. You guys think you'll ever yeah, do a very, show for that band? Well. well, if we did, it would be like a showcase. Okay. Because you know the we since we're, we I've never met them, <laughs> we've never rehearsed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then you know, so we'd have to rehearse. And then you you were um, brought in to be the singer of Dirty Looks. Now, did that just not happen because of the quarantine and all that stuff, or is that going to maybe that's, reschedule some that's of those correct. shows? That's correct. Yeah. That's that's been re, that's been rescheduled. Okay. Uh, there is an o- October third date in Selins Grove, Pennsylvania. And so, is being in so many bands is that out of necessity or just a love of the music or a little bit of both? Well, it's an honor to be asked. Yeah. Have you ever thought of doing I've like no, I've said I've said no to a lot of cool shit. Really? What'd you say no to? I heard you were uh, asked to join Pantera at one point. I was not asked to join Pantera. I was asked to do an audition. Audition, sorry. <laughs> they <laughs> they called me cool. once. Yeah, yeah, they called me once and then they called me twice and both times I was like, "Man, I'm in the middle of I'm in the middle of doing something." Yeah. You know, I'm in the middle of uh of really trying to, you know, get, get this band, you know, off the ground. And uh, it's nice to be asked. Plus you have to remember I was in a, like a weird weirdo thrash metal band for almost a decade. And during that decade, for the the most of that decade, Pantera was like a glam rock band. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's true. A lot of people don't know that. And so when they, when they started to write, you know, really heavy, powerful, sort of almost thrashy kind of 
you know, angry metal, you know, bro metal or whatever, I think some people call it for fun. Uh, you know, that was, that was, you know, it was, this is before Cowboys. You know, I hadn't heard anything from Cowboys, but I'd heard plenty of their other stuff with a different singer. I think they had, uh, you know, I would have, if I would have gotten that gig, I would have been on the record that would have been uh, the Power Metal album. Okay. That album called Power Metal. Yeah. yeah. So that would have been, um, oh, shit. Uh, 80. Wow. Eighty <laughs> nine. Wow, that's a that's a no. Eighty eight. No, because that record came out. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, but but power metal was a couple years prior to that. Sure. So probably eighty eight. So, yeah, it would have been uh, eighty six or eighty seven. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, when Sebastian left Skid Row, Snake Zabo called me a couple times and was really him and Rachel really wanted me to audition for, for Skid Row. I was going to ask you so about when that, I, say I think I, that would have been a great match. Well, so did they. And, mm. um, you know, I think that they write great songs. And, and I think that if I'm going to, you know, I'm just not a huge fan. I still, I don't own any Skid Row. I, I, really? I, I think that there's, I, yeah. And I, I think that, that, you know, they're, uh, they're an excellent rock band and, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I might wake up one day and regret that decision to not even try, but yeah. I was, I was trying to, I was trying to get toys, you know, back on the road and I was trying, we were trying to ride and get it together. And we had, we had just made some decisions and I guess that would have been like 93 or 94 or something like that. Mm. Wow. Wait, they asked you to join Skid Row in 93 or 94? Because I think they still had Sebastian. Not, not join. Oh, okay. Not not join. Oh. Not join. Not join. Sebastian was gone. So whatever year he was gone, when oh, he okay. left, and Snake and, you know, here's a campfire, and Snake and, and uh, Rachel are sitting around, well, who, who do we want to try out? And my name was on the list. I thought you so I think that's an great. audition. Yeah, maybe. That, that's a compliment. You know, yeah, well, I mean, I, well, I think uh, Sebastian a... would be would be nice if they could get back with Sebastian, but I, it sounds like that's never going to happen. So, no, he he pissed in their cereal bowl. So he did something. <laughs> Jesus. That, you know, know, for them to not get back together. I mean, you know, Axel never said he'd work with those guns dudes again. Right. Look at right. it. I mean, Axel has Axel is like a he has really really like been impressed the last 10 years. I mean, all of the shit he's gotten to do, you know, yes. um, that, that stint with ACDC was, oh, that's made right. everyone eat their fucking words, man. He just kicked that in the ass. That was awesome. Are you a Guns N' Roses well, fan? He, yeah. I like to, I like to live like a suicide EP and I like the first record. And there's some things that are kind of scattered after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can I not, how can I not like that? I mean, it's kind of like a great mix of Rolling Stones and punk rock and Aerosmith and heavy metal. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's a, it's an excellent, excellent source of a historical classic rock uh, and punk and style all thrown into this one rock and roll band. I mean, that, that was like the savior of like what was going on, what was about to be grunge. That was going to be the light all the way through that. Mm-hmm. 
was a band like Guns N' Roses. You know, even though Nirvana and Pearl Jam were killing it all over town, if if Guns showed up, it was still a big deal. Absolutely. No, they're huge. Guns N' Roses had all the grunge bands open for them. That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So That's very true. They made it work. They yeah. made it fucking work, man. And so it's kind of important to rethink that, that all of the motherfuckers that were talking shit about grunge and pissed off about, you know, oh, man, I want metal. I want, you know, I want this and that and the other thing. And it's like, well, they're playing grunge on Headbangers Ball right next to Bon Jovi. Yeah. No, I think Allison Chains opened kind for of, Poison. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? Uh, maybe I could have, should have, would have just left it alone. But I think that GNR kind of summed it up when they had all those kind of bands be their opening bands. No, that's very, I know. I, I love I love all that stuff too. But I mean, I, I'm probably more partial to uh, the the rock stuff. Like I think of all your bands, I sure. like a lot of your stuff. I think Dangerous Toys is probably my favorite. And now you guys are working on a new album with Dangerous Toys. I've heard uh, some of the song. I've heard Hold Your Horses. I saw you guys do that live in uh, Denver. And then there's a new song called cool. Silver Tongue. What is that one about? Um, it's it's pretty vague, but uh, it's about talking shit. <laughs> Someone talking shit. Okay. And then there's a song yeah, called uh, the, the hook. The hook is uh, blister on your silver tongue. Oh. Like I, I, like if you were going to you know, put a spell on somebody, I hope you get a blister on your silver tongue there, you know, because you're, you're talking shit. You're a used car salesman. You think you're all hot shit and you got this all going on. You, uh, uh, what do you What are you going to do if you get a blister on that tongue? You know, then you're, then you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Cause that's all you got. Right. right. Oh, that's good. And then the pretend it's candy song. That's a great song title. And then the lyrics are even better. It's you've, you've kind of given us a preview of that pretend it's candy yank my doodle. It's a dandy. If you keep this up, I may come in handy. I love like the tongue in cheek yeah. of that. That's so great. I'm excited. When is this uh, yeah. record coming out? Is there any potential dates for that? Well, well, uh, to not make a pun, everyone needs to hold their horses because <laughs> mm-hmm. what's really happening is a slow death. Okay. <laughs> because, because we've tracked a couple of, a couple of these songs uh, that we, you just mentioned. And, um, you know, there's been a few mishaps that have, or just life, uh, things that have happened that have really kind of slowed us down. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we don't like scenario when, when we were high on the hog, we were, we were all, you know, living in close proximity. Well, now we're all over the place and it's really hard for us to get together to write. So it turns into, you know, two or three of us writing via the internet, right? Recording parts and, here, I did this, put something down on it. Cool. I hear I added this. Now you do something. And that's just pretty much how everything is done now. Uh, unless you're going to go camp out in a studio, but that's a, that's a fantasy. No one does that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they have home studios. They're, yeah. you know, people are emailing, you know, drum tracks to the guitar players and the guitar players are emailing those tracks to the singer for the singer to, to demo out his, what he's going to do, you know, that's just how it is. And then they end up just making a record like that, mm-hmm. especially during quarantine. Yeah. You know? Are there any uh, covers but, on the, 
on the new toys record? If not, I, I'd like to make a suggestion. Uh, hear me out. The John Fogarty song, The Old Man Down the Road. I think you guys could kill that song. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I love John Fogarty, but I'm probably the only one in the band that would, that would be game for something like crazy like that. Because that'd yeah. be kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. I just think that a um, metal version of that would sound really cool. Yeah, I don't think the toys are metal, but you know, again, I'm not I'm not dissing anyone's opinion of that. Um, doing a dangerous toys version. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I think that, you guys are. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get kind it. Of metal. You wouldn't call yourself metal. I mean, well, you described it as boogie well, metal. I think is what you've said before, right? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. That's a that's a thing that that makes you that makes you want to lay off the the metal part because boogie metal. What is that? You know. <laughs> Uh, I think, I think Jackal, I I've called and they probably would like it, but like redneck metal, you know, <laughs> that's good. I like that. Well, yeah. you're older. And, then, uh, and, the, and, and there's a bunch of that, there's a bunch yeah. of that out there. Like Michael Hannon, I mentioned him. He has a band called American dog and they're total redneck metal. And they might even have a record called that or a song called that. So, you know, it does exist. All of this convoluted you know let's 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 name this style and put it in a box and put it on the end of the shelf with all the other subgenres of what is just fucking rock and roll mm-hmm. so well um it- we don't have enough we don't have enough uh in, we don't have enough on tape to call it a dangerous toys record chuck it's okay it's 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 the it's still it's on a it's on a shelf it's on a back burner there's nothing going on because of the quarantine and go sure. back further because, uh, you know, personal things have happened to some of us that have really slowed us down that, you know, we need to heal. And, okay. uh, there's, you know, shit, shit gets in the way. Life gets in the way of sure. rock and roll. You don't Absolutely. think about it when you're a young person, you don't, you don't really look at that. You just want to, Hey, when's the new shit coming out? You know, I get asked that every day. It's like, yeah. well, you know, think, think about the world right now. I, I got an email the other day. When are you guys playing in my town? Blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, if you take a look around, no one's playing right now. I don't <laughs> right, know what you're exactly. talking about. No one's playing right now. Why are you asking me this stupid question? So, well, your old but, uh, you know tour mates, Tora Tora, they just they're going to release a five song acoustic EP. Would you guys ever do that for the toys? Like uh, I think Promise the Moon, Heard It All. Those might sound really kind of cool acoustic. Would you ever do like a little acoustic EP? Well, the last thing I want to do is make my drummer play a tambourine. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, I can. Because what people, you're... what people know you for, they really expect that. Yeah. Um, you know, a bunch of old fat dudes <laughs> with balding long hair, you know, skullet kind of thing going on, trying to fit in their skinny jeans, yeah. uh, playing acoustic just sounds and looks in my mind like a funny retarded video it doesn't sound good to me i'm not calling anyone who's doing that uh, old or fat or bald or anything i'm just trying to create a scenario to get myself out of you thinking it's a good idea that was supposed to be funny yeah you're you're not loving my ideas right now but um Let's see what that's I, okay. It's not, you know, don't take it. Per, dude, no, no, please no. don't take it personal, man. I'm, no, I'm just trying just to funny. keep it real. I was asked, dude, check this out. This is for real. Somebody asked me the other day and God bless them because they, they think they, 
seemingly think I hung the moon or something because I did an interview with this guy uh, and it went really well and we got along great and it was a fun thing, much like this, by the way, this is a very cool thing that we got going on here. So, and he, he emails me back and goes, dude, our interview just like totally lit up the whole sky. Everyone here, it was somebody in Fargo, North Dakota. Hmm. And, oh, man, I'm playing your music even more now. We're getting more requests. And it's like, requests? People do that shit when they can just turn on their phone and <laughs> yell at their phone and a song comes up. People are requesting. I guess it's happening in Fargo. Anyway, okay. bless their hearts, man. Rock and roll. That shit's real. So so he's saying, man, everything. And, you know, he's just saying it was just so great. And the world is on fire with my name. And, I'm, man, that's fucking awesome. And he goes, I have this idea. Here's who's already done it and who's going to do it. They're on the calendar. It's going to be awesome. And what it is, it's like a Facebook live streaming performance. Okay. What do you think of those? Do you like those? Well, if 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 it were in quarantine, and I'm, I, I'm not excited about being in a room with even my own bandmates. That means they're assuming that I'm just going to pick up an acoustic guitar and, you know, sing some Willie Nelson. Which would be fucking awesome, but I'm not prepared to do that. You know, yeah. it's like, fuck, I'm going to have to put a set together. I'm going to have to work on this shit. And I'm terrible on guitar. I can play guitar just fine. I'm, I, I teach guitar. That's my day job. I, I'm a music oh, teacher. That's cool. So, 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 you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough to just go on there and excite people. I can bang on it and sing like Bob Dylan if they want, but that sucks. Not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I cordially was very gentlemanly declining, respectfully declined. I appreciate the love, but I just can't do that because you don't know what that is. You know, you're seeing me with an out of tune acoustic singing, you know, Rocket Man. Yeah. That's that's awesome to me, but not awesome to someone who wants to rock out to tease and please. And, right. <laughs> and they're not going to hear that. Yeah. They're not going to hear that. So. Yeah. So, I mean, you've had a lot uh, I just of... Feel like it would, I feel like it would kind of suck for them. Yeah. And, you know, there's going to be comments, people going, whoa, this is long, this is a long way away from what I expected, you know? And it's like, I don't want to give people the bait. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you have a lot of uh, accolades. You were inducted in the Texas, Texas Music Hall of Fame. You have a star on the South Texas Music Walk of Fame. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Rolling Stone, uh, Rolling Stone named your Dangerous Toys debut number, the number 29 best hair metal album of all time. Uh, one of my favorite things that you did that was really cool. We, you had, you've had, I think you, I don't know if it was just once or multiple times, but you were on that metal show and you're in the audience and they, they come and talk to you for a little bit. And you've said, uh, I, well, I know Eddie, he just played your, uh, Dangerous Toys song a couple days ago on the radio. And you've said that Don, uh, Jameson and Jim Florentine have come to see Broken Teeth, are you uh, close with those guys, like an Eddie Trunk? I know Eddie. You and Eddie Trunk seem to have the exact same uh, musical uh, backgrounds in terms of what you're, you're both fans of Rush, UFO, and Kiss, and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, no, none of us are close. All those Jersey guys, I love those guys, and I have a lot of respect for them. And and they're they're super talented, and the whole comedian thing and the and the act that they have going on the the personas that they have are just that's really who they are and it's it's fucking great that they're these metal fans and that metal show and that eddie thought of them first and it's you know to have a show it's like eddie doing it by himself god bless him you know that might have been a little bit boring 
I, I like it that, you know, people loved it or hated the, that metal show. The guys in Kiss called it Wayne's World. You know, who, who wants to watch Wayne's World? That's stupid. You know, oh, I didn't know that. And at the same time, yeah, and at the same time, that Willis, he's right. The guys in Kiss are right. It is Wayne's World. Kind of, yeah. The original Wayne's World yeah, skit, yeah. you know, it's like. They have rock stars on. They go, hey, man, you're awesome. We love you. Now what? Oh, man, what kind of food do you, you know, stupid shit, you know? And I love it. Yeah. There's no music, you know? They're just talking shit, you know? That's cool, though, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, the story about how I met Jim was uh, he was in Austin doing his comedy act, and he went on the morning show of the local rock radio station. And back then I was not getting up like old man early. Now I get up early as fuck. And Mm. back then I was, I slept till at least noon or one, you know, started my day at three or whatever the fuck. And, and so it's like, dude, it's like 8am and my phone's ringing. And I'm like, who the fuck is, is someone dead? You know, that's, you know, I, when that happens, that something was always bad news. And my buddy was calling me going, dude, they're talking about you on the radio right now. It's like, man, anyone who's up this early talking about me that likes my kind of music, why are they up this early if they like what I do? Because they know, you know, rock and roll people don't get up at 7 a.m. Fuck right. this. Yeah. I hung up. And then another dude called me that I barely knew. This this guy, uh, I think I can't remember his name right now. I feel terrible. He's in this other band in town, and uh, might have been Dave. And he was in the band The Crumb Bombs, kind of punk rock band. And he's a big comedy fan, so he was all over it. And Jim ends up meeting him somewhere, and Dave knew enough because he's local, right? Knew enough people. He got my, he got my phone number and called me later in the day. Hmm. He's like, Hey man, it's Dave from the crumb bombs. Oh, Hey dude, what's up, man? He goes, man, Jim Florentine really wants to, man, he's such a huge, anyway, let me back up. They were on the radio show. I found out what was going on. What had happened was is the morning show guys, and it's a, it's a comedy show, you know what I mean? And he was Mm -hmm. there plugging his show that night at the, laugh factory or whatever the hell right so he's like yeah i'm in town it's my first time in austin and uh and i'm playing tonight the you know the laugh stop or whatever and, and they're going well cool what what are you uh what are you into what do you do you know austin's pretty pretty awesome town it's a music town he goes yeah i'm pretty bummed that my favorite band broken teeth is not playing tonight while i'm here and the guy the dj's tripped out and they're like well we know jason we know, we know that guy. Da, 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 da. He's like, oh man, really? I'd love to meet that guy. Da, da, da. Yeah, I bought their album. They're great. They're kind of like ACDC and da, da, da. And just basically plugging the shit out of Broken Teeth on the morning show. And again, I'm thinking, who the hell is listening to this? But it's pretty badass. This this guy I don't know who's a comedian who's up and coming, uh, you know, crank anchors and all that, uh, is talking about Broken Teeth. At the, at the time, we only had a couple of records out, you know, two or three, maybe mm-hmm. a couple. And so it's still early 2000s, you know, 2005, maybe something like that. And uh, so later in the year, later on in the day, Dave Crumbaum calls me and says, dude, he was he loves broken teeth, man. And he's going to put you on the list and was hoping that, 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 that can I give him your phone number? 
because I'm kind of in the lobby of his hotel right now. Oh shit. Okay. Fuck. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, give him my number. So, so he calls me or I called him or whatever. And we chat, we make a plan. And I showed up to his gig that night with a backpack full of swag, broken oh, teeth. That's shit. so cool. And I brought you, I brought you a gift, man. And he, and he, he talked about broken teeth in his act that night. Hey, you guys like rock and roll in the whole crowd. Yeah. This guy, Broken Teeth, I'm really in, you know, and he, he, he was using, he usually uses one of his favorite bands in, in his act somehow, you know. Yeah. So there I was sitting, here's this chick and she's doing this and she's doing that and I'm, li- I'm listening to Broken Teeth while I'm, while she's blowing me or whatever and blah, 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 you know, and then yeah. the punchline or whatever. So he just mentioned, you know, he's not telling a joke about a band. He's yeah, using yeah. the band as fodder, right? Yeah, telling yeah. A story. Give you a little publicity. That's good. Anyway, Right. So, and this is pre Monsters of Rock cruises and all that. And so now it's just historical, um, you know, that metal show and they talked about broken teeth and they, they always mentioned me on there and, uh, sort, sort of a roundabout cool. alumni kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe well, that's how rock and roll people are, man. It's a, it's a family. Yeah. Is there any other new bands? I know you like Danko Jones and Airborne, are you a fan of like Greta Van Fleet, who's kind of like a Led Zeppelin uh, sounding band or the Struts who are kind of like sound like the Queen? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of these retro sounding bands popping up. Do you like those or, or do you are you more just into the original well, stuff? I'm, I'm more into the original stuff, but but I appreciate uh, someone who's wearing their influence on their sleeve because I sure do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of uh, bands, you know, bands you mentioned that are they're they're great. Um, but, uh, this sounds terrible. I, I don't go out and buy their records, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if there's a new Testament record or something like that, I'll go buy that. You know? Um, if there's a new Danko, I'll try to buy that. I usually don't have to cause he's sending me that shit before <laughs> it's even out. Yeah. That's really cool. So, yeah. Uh, and, uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like, uh, stylistic bands that are just really badass that are, flying the flame, you know, flying the flag, just like Broken Teeth is. It's a dirty, fast rock and roll that still not heavy metal, but I think you, you think that it's heavy metal because it has a classic sound, yet it's brand new. See what I mean? I love that about all of the bands you mentioned. I mm-hmm. think that it's important. And being a music teacher, I'm hearing about those bands and or maybe uh, having to learn how to play one of their songs in order to teach it to my students. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah. So you work with the kids at School of Rock. That's your day job. And adults. Oh, yeah, and adults I teach. Too, okay. I teach all ages. My youngest student is a six-year-old, and my oldest is probably fifty. Oh, that's know? that's super cool. Um, well, I like to end each yeah, episode uh, years. talking about uh, charity. You mentioned the Central Texas Food Bank. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that they do? I mean, sounds pretty self-explanatory, but. Yeah, there's not really anything else to say about it. Um, they, you know, they feed thousands in Central Texas every day, and they people donate. I'm sure that people donate money uh, all day long because, uh, you know, much like all of the other foundations and charities, you know, very little money can buy a lot of meals for a lot of people. Sure. And just people on welfare and people who just aren't doing real hot right now mentally and socially because they have, they've had to adapt and they don't have the resources 
they have to drive their car. I'm good thing gas is cheap. You know, yeah. they have to drive their car and sit sit there in their car in line and expose themselves just to that's bad, but you know what I mean to yeah. Uh, yeah. to the virus to 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 just get some food to make it through the week. And um, you know, I'm not I'm not suckered into all of the the you know the the commercials and the ads, but you know, I think that to try to give some back here locally. I mean, Texas is a big, big state. Sure, yeah. And um, I think that everyone's going to be fine throughout this because I just have a lot of hope. But I really think that it's a good idea to for everyone to try to give to their local food bank. Absolutely. So. That's very cool. Well, you've accomplished so much in your career. I know you're not done. I look forward to that new Dangerous Toys album, whenever, however long it takes to do that, and hopefully some shows. Um, is there anything I've left out or anything else you want to promote? Um, no, you know, the new igniter, the new the possibilities of a new uh, Howling Sycamore within a year or so. Uh, hopefully Dangerous Toys will get off our slow old ass and, and do some more recording because we have a bunch of songs. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, that's not the problem. Sure. Uh, and uh, but I'm looking forward to a lot of new uh, making a lot of new music for people. Um you know, I'm, I'm still writing and, uh, teaching and, uh, I'm still alive and, uh, I feel blessed. <laughs> That's good. So yes. thank, thank, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your show and yeah, letting, thanks let for me being talk on. about rock and roll. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's my favorite, my favorite thing to do is talk about rock and roll. Absolutely. So well, anytime you're welcome back. Thanks so much for coming on. All right, Chuck. Have All a right. good one. You too, Jason. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This was such a fun interview. I love talking metal and rock music, especially with one of the best people in the business. So I want to thank Jason for coming on my show. Check out all his stuff on his website, jasonmcmaster.net. The link is in the notes, or you can Google it. Um, And that should have links to all his social media, the different pages for all the bands that he's in, as well as merchandise and basically everything you need. Um, You can find me on all the social media as well. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to write me a review on iTunes or Facebook. Um, And if you don't want to miss any upcoming episodes, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and making it through this episode. I hope you have a great day or night.